0: Hunchback by Burt Rocket is opening episode 184 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. You can hear more from Burt Rocket by looking him up on Facebook or buying the album Savage Iceland. It's available on Amazon. Let him know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Welcome to the show. I am your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook. I'm excited because we're going to talk about Dwight Fry in this episode with fellow podcaster Nicholas Hatcher. He is the man behind the new podcast, Vampire Over Hollywood, the Bela Lugosi podcast. You can find that over at legosipodcast.blogspot.com or you can follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. As of this recording, he just released a new episode. So go check that out after you're done listening to this episode where Nicholas and I are going to talk about Dwight Fry and the movie Dead Men Walk featuring Dwight Fry in a very, very cool George Zuko. I'm excited to get to that. So, that's happening in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Then, I'm going to let you know about an upcoming DVD release that I'm super excited about. Also, at the end of the show, we have another voicemail, another tribute to Leonard Nimoy, who recently passed away. This comes from frequent Monster Kid Radio guest Paul McComas. So, we're going to play that as well. And then, we'll go over all the website stuff at the end of the show and let you know how you can get a hold of us and leave us voicemails and emails. So, stay tuned for that. Or go over to monsterkidradio.net if you want to skip ahead. Why don't we go ahead and dive into this conversation with Nicholas Hatcher, right after this.
1: As a man, I could destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Vincent, turn on the generator. Produced on a vast scale son of Frankenstein, presents the most fearsome
0: cast in the history of the screen. the Rathbone. In his heart, warm human emotions, in his mind, the monster mania, Karloff,
1: rising from the past to spread new terror.
0: Nugose, sinister,
1: mysterious, evil, Lionel Atwill, grim hatred in his blood.
2: Heaven, I might think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he?
1: I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers. like Carnival of Souls, The Mole People, Black Sunday, and The Tingler. Do you find yourself late at night reading magazines such as Film Max, Chiller Theater, or Monster Bash? Do you love vintage television programs like Sky King, Outer Limits, and The Time Tunnel? Do you find yourself surfing the net looking for the next monster movie festival or expo? Do you enjoy hearing anecdotes, cinematic details, and unusual insights into some of your favorite movies? If you answered yes to any of the above, you are encouraged to join your host, Vince Rotolo, as he examines some of the latest horror, sci-fi, and cult theatrical releases, new DVDs to add to your collection, and of course, the old classics, both good and bad. He even interviews people throughout B-Moviedom. So tune into to Movie Cast at bmoviecast.com. There's a curse on our village. The curse of Frankenstein. was Frankenstein, that your mother was the lightning. The most dreaded creation of man, the monster of Frankenstein, stalks again. Here is drama completely strange, full of weird suspense. With this great cast, Sir Cedric Hardwick, Lionel Atwill, Ralph Bellamy, Bela Lugosi, Evelyn Anchors, Lon Chaney, in the gripping tale of a monster the tomb cannot engulf. Chains cannot hold You're going to give him life? Yes Not for the purposes that you think, Igor I'm giving him another brain
3: Is that your shower,
0: Yeah, Yes, yes So we love Dracula. I mean, Dracula is one of the best. And it's not just because of Lugosi, but it's a big, big part of of why we like the movie. But there's another guy in this movie that has my attention as well when he's on screen. And he's got that laugh.
3: The four-note laugh, yes. Oh,
0: my God.
3: (laughs) Dwight Fry. Dwight Fry is honestly one of the reasons that I was hooked to this film, even as a first grader. Oh, yeah? There was something about him, especially the first part of the film, which is the best part of the film. The lead up to him coming to Dracula's Castle and eventually succumbing to the will of, of the Count. Dwight Fry is magnetic. He lights up the screen whenever he's in this film or Frankenstein or uh, any film that I've seen him in. He definitely has that same draw as Lugosi. So, at least for me.
0: It's something about his eyes. I mean, we talked about Lugosi's eyes, but there's something about Fry's eyes. There's this undeniable light in them, even though he's playing maybe a darker character like Fritz in Frankenstein or something like that. There's this light in his eyes that really remind me that I'm watching a black and white film whenever he's on because his eyes are just so bright and pulling me in while trying to push me away at the same time. There's this tugging that's going on. and I'm just drawn to what he's doing.
3: He's one of those actors that... I want to see every film that he is in. There are not a lot of actors like that for me. You know, I, I notice actors in certain films and and everything, and I say, oh, that, you know, I recognize them from this. But when I see Dwight Fry in a film, I just think, oh, yes, thank God he is in this movie because he's going to have something interesting to bring to this film. And, you know, it doesn't matter what film it is. And he played mostly bit parts in his films, unfortunately. Which is
0: unfortunate, man. He could have carried Leaning Man. I mean, Dracula takes him on that arc from, the, the leading man, care. Do you think he's going to be the hero? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and then unfortunately the arc goes down pretty quickly for him. <laughs> but he's got a good range in that film.
3: That's one of the reasons that his character is so interesting in that mm-hmm. film, for me at least. In the original novel, Jonathan Harker is the one who goes to Transylvania and mm-hmm. is the real estate agent and, and uh, tries to sell him that. And Renfield is actually his boss and he's a much older man for some reason for the this film they decided to change that to renfield i don't know why but i'm so glad they did because i don't think david manners would have been able to uh, to handle this but um it's true uh, anyway you see him at the beginning of the film he's very well put together he's very confident you know he's like yeah i'm going to castle dracula what you, you know why do you ask and uh <laughs> you kind of you see the various stages of him you know being taken over and his disbelief and and how he handles it and i i especially love the scene where they're talking about the their their plans and what they're going to do and let go see Leans into his face and it's like, oh, you know, I've chartered a ship and everything, and and it's really it's really <laughs> slow and and it's so creepy. And then you cut to to Dwight Fry and he just rolls his eyes, just like, okay, everything's gonna be ready. You know, he he doesn't have time for that. You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, I love I love that scene. I love the look on his face after that because it's just like, what what is with this guy? You know. Then you know the first scene on the on the ship, and. You see him for the first time as you know the fly eater,
0: yeah.
3: And uh, oh my gosh, just the way that he moves and his his hands as he's lifting the coffin, and just and then when, you know when the ship obviously comes in and they're examining it, and you just hear the laugh.
0: Oh <laughs> man, that's <laughs> oh, it too. That's oh the laugh. That's it's, the laugh that haunts me.
3: Oh, I hear it all the time. And I just, when I, I remember when I was a kid going up to people and doing that laugh. And it just, I, I love that. I, I just, it's so, it's so memorable. It sticks in your head. It's iconic. Absolutely. And I definitely think that this was the beginning of that henchman kind of, obviously it'd be developed a little bit more in Frankenstein with Fritz, but that, that crazy henchman who, you know, is doing the master's bidding and everything that this is all from started in Dracula, all of
0: it. So. Now, following Fry's career, is that what led you to Deadman Walk? Absolutely. (laughs)
3: 100%. 100%. Deadman Walk, I, I kind of... Have a fondness for it, you know. I told you off mic, you know. This this isn't gone with the wind, but um, <laughs> but uh, you know, this movie's kind of been derided a lot throughout the years. But there, there's something special in this movie. It's Dwight Frye and also George Zuko. I love George Zuko.
0: Oh, he's um, great.
3: Oh, he's fantastic. He's he's part of that uh, kind of second tier horror actors, you know, kind of like with Lionel Atwill and everything. These guys run a lot of horror films, but they really don't get the recognition that they deserve that, you know, us horror fans know who they are, but ask anybody out on the street, you know, if you ask anybody on the street, you know, who's Bela Lugosi, hopefully they know, but no one's going to know who George Zuko and Dwight Fry are. Unfortunately,
0: that's
3: true. Yeah. Deadman walk is one of these films that really out of all the, public domain sludge out there it really stands up high for me uh yes it's a very slow film but you know that's never stopped me from loving a film before so yeah it was definitely uh dwight fry that drew me to this movie
0: you know it's just barely over an hour long i think it can afford to to pace itself out a little bit yeah it's not very long it's a a short film it's by prc isn't it it's it's one of the lower uh poverty row Type films. It's, it's low budget. It shows. I mean, they cast Zuko in two roles for crying out loud. But <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, to to his credit, though, he really did well with those. Two oh, he roles. did.
0: So, yeah, he did.
3: Yeah, PRC was uh, one of those uh, Poverty Rose studios, and um, they mostly cranked out westerns and things like that but they did make a few horror films most notably the devil bat with Legosi which is a fantastic film
0: yes
3: and uh definitely one of his better poverty row films as well so that for that alone i always remember PRC because that that was where the devil bat was made so
0: mm-hmm. and the devil bat's great
3: oh yeah and then Love uh, the devil bat i'm looking here i i didn't realize they also put out Bluebeard, which is a film with John Carradine his actual yes. first starring role and that's a wonderful film too so there there's definitely little gems in these in these uh Poverty Road Companies and I consider Deadman walk a gem.
0: I think people should see it. It's a fun film and it's it's hard to say that because it does have a slower pace. Absolutely. But some yeah. of the performances in this, especially Zuko as the villain. Yeah, absolutely. Man, I mean Zuko is a bad guy. I, I <laughs> there's something about him that as a villain I'm really drawn to him. When he's when he's a straight lace guy, well, you know, he's a good guy, whatever, but Zuko is yeah. the villain. Oh yeah. He's spot he,
3: on. He, You know, I kind of think of him as like maybe a poor man's Karloff a little bit. He, uh. I kind of get that feel from him because, you know, he, he's that kind of British stage actor and, and everything, but he, he definitely in the film, especially the mummy films he was in. Oh my gosh.
0: Oh, they're great. I love yeah. the mummy
3: movies. So all those, all those Karis mummy movies. I love all those films. Yeah. They get repetitive, but who cares? It's, it's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he also did, you know, flying serpent, the mad ghoul. Uh, he was in the mad monster with Glenn Strange and
0: I like scared uh, to death a lot. Scared to death,
3: yeah. Legosi. what's him oh. and Lugosi. in yeah, color? His, his only color film, yeah, yeah. That's an that's an awesome movie. It's very creepy. It's just that,
0: yeah. That's
3: all the colors are kind of off a little bit, and so it kind of creates a weird atmosphere. It's like this weird people.
0: kind of dream like thing going on. Yeah, the
3: colors, yeah. I I love that movie, and they they recently played that on TCM, which I thought, oh my gosh, the, really? Yeah, they played it on TCM. I just thought, oh, this is interesting TCM was playing scared to death That's i mean great <laughs> it wasn't yeah it wasn't it wasn't a great print but still it was on tcm so I, that must add some kind of legitimacy to it right
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, like we care we love yeah it. I, I don't care i <laughs> watch it, at it all we thing. don't care
3: yeah i'd watch it anyway so <laughs> anyway yeah george zuko is in this film and unfortunately this is pretty much the ending of a of a long, hard career for Dwight Fry. I think this, I think this film would actually be released the year he died. I think I'm not, I'm not positive about that, but
0: that's correct. He passed away in 43.
3: Yeah. At at this point in his career, he had been really very much on a down downward spiral. He had appeared mostly in bit parts for a long time after Dracula and Frankenstein. You know, he had a few uh, major roles, his, his highest, Build role was in the Crimes of Doctor Cresby with Eric von Stroheim.
0: Oh, okay. Uh,
3: it's an interesting movie, kind of slow, but he, that was actually his highest build credit that he ever received. I think he's like third on the bill. Oh, In, okay. that, in that film. But after that, you know, the roles just just didn't come. Thankfully, Universal put him in almost all of the Frankenstein films, mostly as bit parts. He supposedly had a rather lengthy role in Son of Frankenstein, which I would have loved to have seen because Son of Frankenstein is my favorite Frankenstein film. Oh, really? Absolutely. Well, the is Igor is hard to beat. So. Yeah, I mean, the, everything about that film, Basil Rathbone, everything, oh, yeah. that movie is wonderful. And supposedly, uh, Fry had a rather lengthy role in that film. But I it was going to ask
0: you about that. I had heard that, that there's uh, kind of a backstory with his character, and he had done a lot more on screen that all got cut. The film,
3: as far as I understand the script was changing daily. And so that's the reason why Lugosi's role was pumped up. Cause in the original script, uh, Igor was not a very big character. He had one or two lines, uh, maybe a couple scenes, but, uh, the director of the film, uh, was wondering why Legosi wasn't being used more. So since the film was changing on a day to day basis, he increased Legosi's role tenfold because he was such a fan of Legosi and he knew that he needed the work. Whereas Dwight Fry his scenes were, uh, were cut out, which, you know, we talk about Legosi having a sad career and yeah, in a sense he did. But when compared to Dwight Fry, Legosi's <laughs> career was wonderful. He constantly had work. Fry did uncredited bit parts for most of his career.
0: That's true.
3: So that's, that's a shame, you know, because even Legosi could do the top billing for all, all the, uh, poverty row films. But, um, mm-hmm. uh, but yes, Fry did appear in bit parts in uh almost I think all of the Frankenstein films except obviously the ones made after he died. So thankfully he's in those. We can see him for a brief second in those. But yeah, besides that, you know, Universal kind of uh left him out in the cold after Frankenstein. So
0: yeah, it's a shame. He did pass away way too young. He had a heart problem and you know, didn't really talk about it with his with his friends and family, so it really went undiagnosed or untreated for a long time. Yeah. And you know, it's just unfortunate because he really brought so much life. I mean, to these characters that are sometimes about death. I mean, his Renfield is amazing, and I really enjoyed him in Dead Men Walk. I mean, it, it's like he was born to play these <laughs> evil assistant type characters, but he was so good at it.
3: He definitely got tired of it. He, uh, I'm sure. He, he said, you know, if only they would just cast me in a comedy because. Here's something that lots of people probably don't know about Dwight Frye. He was a humongous success on Broadway.
0: Yeah, before, he had
3: a before Dracula, career. he was destined to become. The next big uh, stage actor after like John Barrymore, he got rave reviews no matter what play he was in, and he he was a serious Broadway actor before deciding to get into the films. I'm glad he didn't do this because we wouldn't have his great performances. But one almost wishes that he would have just kind of stayed away from the films because you know he was having such success. But you know, thankfully for us, he didn't because we get his great performances. But you it, it kind of feel sorry for him because here's this guy who you know who's commanding these the stage. And you know, doing all this stuff and getting rave reviews from critics, and his career just kind of topples down after Frankenstein, which really is is a shame.
0: It is unfortunate. I mean, having the movies on film or on video for us now, or digital, or whatever these movies or these performances are now captured for us forever to watch. Whereas on stage, it's kind of a one and done deal. And I'm sure, I mean, it's a different experience. So we at least have his performances preserved for us to enjoy now, like in this movie or the other movies that he's done over his career. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's kind of got a small part in dead men walk, but again, whenever he's on stage or on screen, his eyes, man, you just can't. Oh,
3: the scene that I think of is, is the scene at the end when he, uh, he tries to kill uh, the good Zuko and uh, <laughs> yeah, Doctor Lloyd C- Clayton. And uh, at the end of the film, when he's you know shaking that thing at him, and you see his, they do a close up on him, and yes, you can see the rage. It's
0: terrifying. Oh, it's and he still
3: is. He still has that acting power, and this movie fortunately gives him the chance, at least for a few scenes, to. To show that, and he still had the ability to to command the screen. And when he was given a chance, it was just he could do it. And it's a shame that he wasn't given more chances because very talented actor.
0: Definitely, definitely. And and you know, I'm talking about his eyes, but it wasn't just a facial performance for him. His whole body was in. Oh yeah. You know, he's as Zolar in this movie. I mean, here's there's some real good body acting, and of course, Runfield and the other roles, but. Just watch his entire performance. If you haven't watched his entire body while he's performing, you're going to see a complete character there. It's amazing.
3: Those are always the signs of the best actor, in my opinion, The, the ones who can take so little. And makes so much. You know, Legosi had that as well. You know, take so little out of a performance and blow it up into something that is so memorable. Because if you watch this film, what are you going to remember? You're going to remember Zuko and you're going to remember
0: Dwight Fry. Well, and really, to be fair, in this film, they are the two most watchable performers in the movie. It doesn't hurt that – and they're good. I mean, not to talk too poorly of them, but – <laughs> the other performers in the movie, they're not as good as Zuko and Fry. We got Nedrick Young and Mary Carlisle as the yes. young couple that are threatened by the, uh, we'll say, it, the vampire. You know, I mean, the movie's what? How old? So I, I feel like we can spoil a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, there's nothing wrong
3: with that. I think this is one of the few actual vampire films that a lot of these Poverty Row companies made. I, I don't know why they kind of went for the more mad scientist films rather than vampire films but yeah it's it's definitely a vampire film
0: and i was a little surprised by that the first time i'd seen this years ago i didn't think it was going to be a vampire movie now granted the title could work for a vampire film but it's not like it was put on the movie posters or even the terrible dvd box art doesn't really (laughs) show it as you know zuko with fangs that sort of thing granted you don't see the fangs in the movie either but yeah it's not so in your face vampire flick
3: no, it's really not. That's kind of something I enjoy about it. Although you know, it would be nice to maybe see a little bit more. At one point in the film, Mary Carlisle, who plays Gale, she mentions having dreams about killer bats. We yes. never we never see these killer bats, but um, it would have been nice to see those.
0: Or not. I mean, this is property.
3: Yeah, rough, maybe so. <laughs> not. <laughs> but you know, there's something I like about this movie. There's this kind of strange feeling about it because they say it straight out. You know, Elwin, the the evil brother. He was like worshiping Satan.
0: (laughs) And, you know, he was. It's very in your
3: face. It's very. Lots of occultic stuff going on. And so that, that kind of is rare for a movie at this time. And so that was kind of interesting to see that and, and say, yeah, he was worshiping Satan. Now he's a vampire. It's kind of in your face. I I enjoy that part of
0: it. Yeah. I mean, well, the movie opens with the book of vampirism being thrown into a fireplace, doesn't it? Yeah. Kind of reminded me of like
3: the Inner Sanctum films, you know, the opening. Yeah. The way it started. Yeah. Yeah, kind of that head coming up out of everything. It was a cool little intro. It it kind of set up for a much scarier film, but we really didn't get that. Get, get <laughs> as scary as they said it was going to be. But, yeah, that was a cool intro. I like that.
0: It's a really great intro, and it starts at the funeral. And, I mean, it starts kind of dark, and it's drawing you in right away, the way the setup is is being put together for us fred mighten wrote the screenplay i don't know anything about that guy or what he's done
3: yeah i don't either i do know that uh nedrick young who plays david yeah he was actually in house of wax apparently with uh vincent price so i i think he might have been one of the henchmen or something apparently so really? that's what i found yeah that's what i found i don't know if that's correct holy or not, cow I, I...
0: he was leon oh he was that's what the imdb is showing me wow really? dr kane green would
2: <laughs> yeah i know that would yeah, be like he of course
0: it is and he was on in House of Wax. Wow. Huh. Yeah, I, I didn't I
3: didn't realize that he was Leon. That's amazing. Oh,
0: that's... yeah,
3: he was in House of Wax. I did see that he wrote uh Jailhouse Rock with Elvis Presley and then he wrote the Defiant ones and won an Oscar for it. So that's pretty impressive. Wow. Yeah, he won an Oscar for that for the Defiant ones. So that's that's pretty cool. And that was about the only interesting uh thing I found out about the other actors in this
0: film. But yeah. yeah. Uh, he's really good in house of wax and this one he's a little hes a little stiff in this one He's <laughs> yeah, a little, little straight laced you know, need yeah. to unbutton the top button yeah. on his shirt yeah
3: during the film he kind of threatens zuko a few times always like okay what are you gonna do you know it's, it's yeah. like zuko who's this great you know actor he's like oh okay well we'll see what you do with him but the beginning of the film is very dark and depressing you know we were at a funeral and partway through the funeral a local woman named kate breaks in and proclaims that Elwin is a certain of Satan and asking the preacher to end the funeral and all this other things. And so it's kind of a weird start to the film. Kate,
0: Yes, constantly breaking in, you know, and And kind of our our plot device here to kind of push things along a little bit, played by Fern Emmett.
3: That's exactly what she is.
0: She seems like the character was written older than the performer was. Yeah, would have been better served to be like this crazy old woman, maybe not full on Uno O'Connor style, but, (laughs) you know, just a little bit older and a little bit more eccentric. But no, she seemed to know what was going on.
3: Yeah, it was kind of weird how she always seemed to know what was going on. I always thought she was kind of in on it throughout the film. You know, <laughs> wait, how do you know all this? You know, yeah. What I mean? yeah, she was definitely there to say, okay, well, I know how you're gonna do this. You have to burn him. You know, so that's that's definitely what she's for. But mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. anyway, but it's not overly obtrusive. I mean, it's no, it's, no, it's, it's, it's there. It's part of it. It's part of the story.
3: It's not annoying and it doesn't feel out of place either. It's just, it it makes you kind of wonder sometimes, oh, wait, how do you know all this again? How do you know what's going on? You know? (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, we kind of get introduced into the relationship between Lloyd and Elwyn and they never really got along. And Lloyd gives an interesting piece of information. And for anybody who hasn't seen this film, we haven't really made it clear. George Zuko plays both roles in this yeah. film. He, yeah. he plays Lloyd, who's more of the straight lace brother. And then he also plays Elwin, who worships Satan. And, <laughs> um, and, but he, they introduced this idea in the beginning of the film that, uh, Lloyd feels sorry for his brother. And, you know, he should have never taking that trip to india which i thought was really strange because usually you know it's transylvania or something but here it's india yeah that kind of stuck out to me i was like what india but uh his brother went to india became extremely interested in the occult and he was never the same it's interesting because lloyd feels sorry for his brother when he's speaking to his niece but then when he goes to his brother's house after the funeral he's Starts going through his books. He's like, oh, this is horrible. I can't believe he was involved in all that. You know, it's just, it's kind of like a different vibe. And then this is where we meet Dwight Fry for the first time in
0: the film. Oh, boy. Dwight as Zolar. Yeah. The the assistant to the bad Zuko.
3: Yeah, yeah. And we have to say, Dwight looks a little rough here.
0: He does. Uh, I'm not sure
3: how much of it was makeup and how much of it was him. Because if you also watch Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, which was made the same year, he looks a lot better in that film. So I don't know if a lot of it was makeup or anything, but you can tell that some of it was definitely his face. And he just, he looks really worn and ragged, especially if you watch this film after seeing, you know, Dracula or Frankenstein recently, Yeah, he looks a little rough in this film.
0: He's older. He's uh, put some time behind him yeah, and absolutely you know it's it's getting close to the end of his life here i mean this movie came out in what in 43 and he didn't die too yes. much longer after that so no
3: very very soon after that yeah
0: so, oh the same year that's right this we talked about that yeah. earlier
3: yeah yeah he was, he was very was kind of fed up but it doesn't affect his performance no. at all he is running on all cylinders he mm-hmm. comes into the room instantly he said oh what are you doing with these books you know, your brother's been collecting these books his whole life and then he accuses Lloyd of murdering his brother. Yeah. <laughs> which puts a whole different spin on this film, honestly.
0: It really does, because this whole time, like you said, when we're introduced to him, he talks about feeling sorry for his brother yeah. and,
2: yeah.
0: you know, wishing better for his brother. And boy, it would have been great if things had turned out differently. Whoa. Wait did a minute. He,
3: yeah. <laughs> and they never, they never really confirm it either. In my, I, I, I mean, I, maybe he kind of talked about it a little bit, but did they ever really confirm that Lloyd actually killed his brother?
0: It's hinted at. There's something about pushing him off a cliff, maybe. But yeah, that's that's what
3: I, I just... That's kinda, about as far as it goes. I, and I'm shocked that that was never brought up again. Like, did he purposefully do it? Was it an accident? You know, because if he purposefully did it, I don't blame Elwyn for coming back from the dead and trying <laughs> to, to take his brother down, because that's messed up. I mean, you know, I just... I don't know. I just I kind of was a big question mark in my mind. It's like, wait, did he actually do it? Was he doing it out of malice? It's kind of strange.
0: It's very vague. It's very up in the air. And, you know, for the time to, what, well, this is early 40s? Yes. I don't yes. know what the production code was like at the time, if it was something that they couldn't have the hero confess. <laughs> yeah. About. I don't know if that could have been part of it, but it is very, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of. really it, happened
3: here? Yeah, it leaves kind of a weird a weird taste in your mouth because is he really the hero? Is he really, right. you know, is he really doing the right thing in this situation? So Lloyd gets kind of pissed at him and throws him to the ground and Fry gets up and he, he says the best line in the film, which I, I can't forget. I always think about it. He says, You'll pray for death long before you die, and then he runs out of the room. And I just, I love that. That is so cool. That that is so that is that is so Renfield like. You know, I just, I love that line. It's the best line in the film. And so, uh, yeah, that's definitely that's our introduction to Dwight Fry in this. That's one of my
0: favorite two lines in the movie. My other favorite line is near the end of the film. But Fry's delivery on that—if Fry walked into the room, said that to me, and ran out. I'd be oh, terrified.
3: Yeah. yeah. Cause you know, it would <laughs> happen. Yeah. You know, and I, I love that line. It just, it, that makes the movie for me right there is to be able to see him deliver that line. So if, if that was the end of the movie, I'd be like, awesome movie, you know, <laughs> but um, anyway, but uh, so yeah, Zolar. He runs out of the room and he's all mad. And, you know, I also thought for a hunchback, he he's pretty spry for a hunchback. And you know, I was kind of wondering about that.
0: Was he supposed to be a hunchback in this? I know he was kind of shouldered yeah. up a little bit, but I, you know, I, I couldn't tell if they were going full on Fritz or what they were trying to do there.
3: I kind of got the feel that it was kind of a, a hunchback in pictures that I've seen uh, that were from the film. I kind of get that idea. So okay. I'm going to say he was a hunchback. and right. I think I think that's definitely what they were going for. But yeah, he's, he's a spry hunchback. Um, yeah. We move on to what I wrote in my notes as sappy love scene number one. Um, <laughs> oh, no. You know, that unfortunately, with a lot of these movies that we love, at the time, when people went to the films, to these films, they wanted to see almost more than one type of film. They wanted to appeal to all members of the audience. So – Something that we have to deal with in a lot of these films is these romances that we have to go through. Uh, Thankfully, it's not that heavy in this film as it is in other films. But one of the movies that jumps in my mind is like Murders in the Room Morgue," where the romance scenes are just so horribly over the top and just soupy weird. I just I don't know. So we have a little bit of that here, and David and Gail are in love, and so they want to get married, and they go to Lloyd to get his permission, because I think her parents died, I'm not sure, I can't remember. Yeah, he's
0: the guardian.
3: Yeah, he's her guardian, and so he says yes, but meanwhile we cut to the local graveyard, and Zolar is wheeling out a coffin yeah. into the middle of the graveyard. Which I thought was funny because it's kind of open for everyone to see, but <laughs> whatever. Um, yeah, not
0: very subtle there.
3: Uh, yeah, really right. not. Um, <laughs> he opens the lid and Elwynn is there and he rises from the grave. It's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. We, we mentioned it real quick, just to kind of to talk a little bit about it real quick. Mary Carlisle plays Gail Clayton, the love interest yes. of yes. Dr. David Bentley of Nedrick. This was her last film. Oh, yes, yes. This, this was, her, was her last film. Her final movie. I don't know a lot about her, but she was pretty prolific during the 30s.
3: Yeah, I haven't actually I, – I did some research. I haven't actually seen her
0: in anything else. Right. So – It doesn't look like she did a lot of you know horror films or, or that sort of thing. That's probably why I haven't seen her in anything
3: else. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't really get out of my genre cinema as much as I should. But um, this was her last film. I, I haven't seen her in anything else. She was fine in this. Mm-hmm. I, I can't really say I loved her performance, but she was fine. No problem. I mean, she
0: gets overshadowed by Zuko and Fry, of course. Yeah, absolutely. You know, she's the other part of the uh, the couple
3: here, the romance. Thankfully, this last month you did your great Women in Horror Month, which was excellent. Oh, by the thanks, way, man. but uh, some of these films don't have very well developed female characters, and this is probably one of those films.
0: Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah, it is, you know,
3: especially because later on we get some of the great actresses, especially a lot of the horror, act- uh, the Hammer horror actresses, and everything. But at this point, you know, except for Evil and Anchors, we really just didn't have a lot of uh, really strong female actresses. So yeah, she, she does a good job in this film with what yeah. she has.
0: She, she so. does what she needs to do.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, we see uh, Elwynn here for the first time, and oh man, this is Zuko in his prime right here. Um, he gets out of his grave and he immediately begins praying to Satan. <laughs> Or as much Satan as they could say. Uh, It's never really clear, but he, he begins a dark prayer and he begins to explain to Zolar, you know, hey, I'm a vampire. You have to find a place to hide my coffin, which, you know. Let's hide it in his crypt. You know, it's just not a very. They didn't. Get, Zolar didn't get really, uh, really
0: creative with that. <laughs> well, it's a low budget movie. They couldn't afford another location. Absolutely. Yeah, and,
3: and to be fair, to be fair, the crypt looks looks okay. It doesn't look bad.
0: No, it's cool uh, actually. I
3: liked it. Yeah, it was cool, and uh, he goes out to stock on his first victim. Now this begins a part of the film that I really enjoyed. There's a lot of really good shadow work in this film. There is. Yeah, and I that's something that you really don't see a lot in these Poverty Row films. And I'm not sure who the cinematographer was on this film, but he did a good job. I enjoyed the work in this film with the shadows. It reminded me, you know, of a lot of the German expressionism and things like that. And uh it kind of added an extra level to the film because it implied when you're seeing this scene that the shadows coming up, it implies that he's outside and coming inside through you know, he's he's materializing inside. So he gets into this girl's bedroom and sucks all her blood. So
0: you know the cinematographer, he was a guy by the name of Jack, and I'm probably gonna mispronounce it, Greenhalg?
3: Okay.
0: Uh, he was also involved with movies like The Mad Monster, Lost Continent, oh, okay. oh. Uh, Robot Monster, of all things.
1: Oh, I love that.
0: <laughs> but yes. I think also some of it, too, we can credit to the director, Sam Neufeld. Who, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sam Newfield was a long career, very prolific in all different types of film. So, you know, he knew what he was doing. And I think to crank these
3: films out as fast as these Poverty Row Studios films yes. – As fast as they did, they had to know what they were doing. And if you didn't know what you were doing, you were out. So thankfully, they may have had a little more time on this film to get a little more creative. But it definitely shows in the cinematography. Mm -hmm. And there's also some special effects shots later in the film that I was shocked to see in this film. And they hold up. Yeah, they look great. And you really didn't see a lot of these effects in these kind of films because, frankly, they didn't have the budget and they didn't have the time. So they had to find interesting ways to get around that, and I think this film really surprised me with that, and it, it looks good.
0: The, I mean, I know we're getting kind of ahead of ourselves, but the final confrontation. Oh yeah. There, there's Very. a, I guess it's a split screen. Uh, it's amazing. They actually do a split screen in our next scene too, and it looks really good. Yeah.
3: And I, you know, I gotta be honest. I don't know if I've seen a split screen in a film before this. I can't think of one. Can you? Oh,
0: let's see, 1940s. I really can't think of one. Not off the top of my head, not quite like this. I might, not, I might have seen something that had like a a full figure and maybe like an apparition interacting yeah. with each other, but not the same performer.
3: Yeah, I, I really don't know how much. I mean, I could be completely wrong. Like I yeah, said, yeah, I'm I, sure there's something out there, but yeah, like I said, I don't know everything about this stuff. I just love these movies, but I don't recall seeing any sort of you know same actor split screen that looked at least that looked that good. It yes. looked really good, and it, it was really did. You know, a lot of times when they would do these kind of things later on, you know, you'd have one actor looking in the wrong place and, you know, and, and it just wouldn't look realistic. But this one looked really, really good. Yes. And that was definitely one of the things that stands out in the film. Like, oh, OK, this is this does rise above a little bit. Mm-hmm. But uh anyway, so the next morning, uh Lloyd and the sheriff are standing over this this girl's body and they see the two tiny marks on her neck. She's been drained of the blood and. You know, think Lloyd kind of has a little bit of an idea, but he doesn't want to let on. And and then Kate shows up. <laughs> <laughs> she just walks in whenever she wants. I just, you know, whatever. She but, really uh, does. She yeah, does. it's kind of, uh, it's like, what are you doing here? But anyway, <laughs> she comes in and says, oh, it's Elwyn's fault. Oh, he's come back from the grave. And the sheriff just makes her leave. So Lloyd is definitely interested because later on he goes to his library and he's uh reading a book about vampirism. I love how in these films there's always a book about vampirism laying around, because I, I wish I had a book about vampirism laying around. But Yeah, uh, exactly. There, yeah. There's always one, <laughs> isn't there? But um, anyway, so while he's trying to read about this, Elwynn materializes in his room, which is the first example of this, and man, it looks good.
0: It really does.
3: And yeah. Zuko,
0: I mean... He looks good in the shadows. Absolutely, me? yeah. He, oh, yeah.
3: He's got those, you know. He's he's kind of got those eyes too, and you you see them, and it's even if you're watching a crappy public domain print, you still see those eyes. Yes, and you still realize, oh, there's something here. He's he, oh, he's evil looking. Then he proceeds to give his entire plan away to his brother, which I just I don't know. I, I don't really understand that. I, I <laughs> <laughs> thought he should have kept a, been a little more secretive about it. But, yeah, he explains, oh, I'm a vampire, and I'm going to take control of Gale and use her against you and get my revenge for you killing me. And that's, I believe, is the last time they mention Lloyd killing Elwin in the film. Right. So he gives his whole plan away, and then he disappears, and Lloyd tries to shoot him. But the kids here are the kids. David and Gail come in. The, the younger, the younger people come in and, and, and think, Oh, you know, what's going on? And he says he just saw a burglar. But Dave, <laughs> yeah, which, you know, whatever. But like, uh, like, really? Yeah. It's like, seriously? I thought uh, I saw a burglar. So I just shot up the place. Yeah. So I'm going to shoot at the window. Um, but, um, David doesn't believe him though. And Gail goes to bed and Lloyd tells David that he thinks that he saw his brother. So David says, Oh, you know, I'm going to help you because I think you need a little rest. And so they're both doctors. David says he's going to help Lloyd out with his practice. We never actually see his practice or any of his doctorly duties in the film, but I guess it doesn't really matter.
0: Well, it would be more sets and more, more extras. So. Yeah, absolutely.
3: <laughs> Elwin begins his plan. He starts to appear outside Gail's window. And he walks in, does this cool little speech about how he's going to put her under his spell and everything. And, and then he's, he sucks her blood for the first time, and uh, she starts to get really sick.
0: Creepy scene.
3: Yeah, very creepy. Creepy uh, scene. Yeah, and once again, those shadows. Uh, those yeah. shadows are just so effective. And he comes in, and like you said at the beginning of the show, Zuko could play the good guy. But he just excelled at these evil roles. There was this undercurrent that he brought to his roles that just, it's just really sinister. It really is very effective. Mm -hmm. His plan becomes an emotion. She starts to become sick. Lloyd doesn't understand. She complains of the nightmares and the bat creatures that we never see. David notices the bites on her neck. Lloyd starts to think that maybe there's a pattern. So they they do a blood transfusion and it it kind of gives her a little more life. But really? during this scene, we also see Elwin appearing and laughing at him, which is really cool too. I I like that. I, I, he's he's kind of like taunting him while yeah. this is going on. It's it, it's a really effective. And the cool thing is, you never ever get a sense that. They're the same character because a lot of times when people would play, whenever they would do the same person playing dual roles, it, it wouldn't be very effective. But it really is here because he just knows how to do it. You can tell, oh, these are two completely different guys. But it, it works. It really does.
0: It, it's amazing to see Zuko because he does put on a different Yeah. between Lloyd and Elwin. And yeah, I mean, one's wearing glasses, one's not. I mean that's the most obvious that's a physical, Superman thing, right? <laughs> right. It's a superman thing. It's the most obvious physical cue of who you're supposed to be believing in at that point, but it's more than that. The way yeah. he kind of holds his face even. Yeah, it's different. It's the, There's a different thing going on there.
3: You could just tell through yeah, his, his facial movements and everything and the way that he kind of glares whenever he's the, yes. the evil brother. He's got this glare that he just is it's just filled with life and you know, Zuko is such an underrated actor. You know, I think we need to talk about him a lot more because he he's right up there with uh, Karloff and Legosi and Cheney for me. He's right up there. He's a wow. great actor. I, I love his work.
0: No, he's definitely good. As Elwyn, he's throwing the words around and yeah, just yeah. You know, the way he even just delivers the lines of dialogue. It's he's pretty good. He's Absolutely. pretty good. I need to watch more of his work.
3: Lloyd really starts believing. Okay, this is happening. I have to do something about this. So he tells David, "Look, we need to get to the crypt, and uh, we need to find this body, and we need to do something about this because I think that Elwynn is a vampire." And of course, David's like, "Oh, you're—it's ridiculous. You know, what, what, this you is need not. A mo- rest. <laughs> yeah, this is this is not modern science." And um, yeah, and so uh, he doesn't believe him, but he says, "Look, you know, if you really want to save Gale, if you really love her, let's go do this." Of course, they go at night which means that the coffin's not going to be there. So they get there. The coffin's not there. David says, you're crazy. I don't believe you. And he proclaims that I want to marry Gail. I'm going to take her away from you. So he goes to the sheriff and just telling him that Lloyd's going to kill Gail and you know, this, all this crap. And of course there, <laughs> for some reason David goes to church to tell the sheriff. And so everyone in the church overhears yep. that Lloyd is going to kill Gail he didn't really think that through. <laughs> anyway, Kate breaks into the house again and gives Gail a crucifix, which I thought was really, really interesting because never in this film do they refer to it as a crucifix or a cross, at least not that I know of.
0: That's a good point. She just says here, wear this.
3: Yeah, I never I never caught them actually calling it a crucifix or a cross. I may be wrong. If Listeners, I'm sorry if I'm wrong. I think that's something very interesting, and I don't know if that has to do with um, the code of, of, uh, what you could do on film at the time. I don't know if they wanted to outright call it a crucifix or if they thought that would offend people. I don't know. That's kind of, I thought that was kind of strange that they just said, hey, you know, you need to wear this. And they never really explained, you know, what it was. But, uh, we all knew what it was. Yeah. She knows that Elwin is a vampire. Once again, I don't know how. And, uh, <laughs> Lloyd and the sheriff don't believe her. Well, Lloyd lets on that he doesn't believe her. Lloyd enters the room, he overhears her, and she tells him that he has to burn the body of Elwyn, But he says, I don't know where the body is, so I don't know what to tell you, but she says she'll help him. Anyway, so Elwyn comes back that night to suck Gail's blood, but he is warded away by the cross. Now, apparently, the vampires in this film can look at crosses, but they can't touch the cross. It just depends on the film you watch. Sometimes they can't even look at the cross. Legosi couldn't look at it. Right. Who knows? So (laughs) Edward's cell went off and David comes and tells Lloyd that, you know, he's not going to let Lloyd murder Gail and that he's going to take her away. And, you know, he's already told the sheriff and everything. And Lloyd convinces him that he's innocent. And so David feels sorry. And so he says, "Okay, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. So David goes and sits in Gail's room that night. Well, Elwyn returns back to, uh, the graveyard until Zolar finally, in another scene after the first part of the film, he says, uh, that he's got to break into the house and take the crucifix away because he can't touch it. And so, of course, Zolar says, okay, I'll go get it. I'll go get it. So there's this great scene where Zolar enters the house. But one of the glaring th- problems in this film for me
1: Uh-oh.
3: is, is that, um, they never really do much to kind of protect her in the film. Like they don't lock the windows because yeah. Zolar Zolar walks right in. Like they don't lock anything, no garlic to be found anywhere in this film. The guy falls asleep while she's, you know, <laughs> while he's watching over her. So I'm amazed at how easy it is to take over this girl in this film because they don't really do much to try to protect her. Lloyd has that book about vampirism. Why doesn't he read that book? and read about how to ward away vampires. But yeah. anyway, I'm getting off track again. I'm sorry. No, no, <laughs> um,
0: you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, yeah. again, it's a part of the reason why I feel like this movie doesn't ring as a vampire film at yeah. first glance. When when you're looking at your movies that you're going to watch for the day, you're like, oh, I want to watch a vampire movie. I'm going to yeah. go with Dead Men Walk. You don't yeah. think that because for the most part, it. I mean, it could be anything. It's kind of
3: strange why they don't really – touch upon any of those things especially because at that point in time that stuff was very defined in horror films you know there there wasn't any sort of you know question about oh well what actually does kill a vampire no we know what kills a vampire at this point we know what he doesn't like which is you know garlic and things like that and anyway zolar walks right into the house
0: No problem.
3: Yeah, no problem. Nobody locks their
0: door here. (laughs)
3: Nobody does. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) Clayton is very trusting of his neighbors, apparently, because Kate's walking in and out. Zolar's walking in and out. (laughs) There's no issue with uh, people coming in.
3: Uh, I don't know if it's a small town or something, but anyway. (laughs) Zolar comes in. David... Wakes up right before Zolar takes the crucifix away and starts chasing him through the house. Once again, Zolar is very spry and he's, uh, he's running away. But he runs into, uh, Lloyd's office and Lloyd and David kind of stand in front of him and behind him. So they grab a hold of Zolar and say, what are you doing here? You know, where's Elwyn? And of course, Zolar denies everything and, uh, somehow the lights cut out and Zolar escapes. But then Elwin appears and taunts them some more, which is another creepy scene. Uh, especially because the lights are out. Yeah. So after this, David finally begins to believe that there is something strange going on around here. Lloyd says, okay, well, we're going to, we need to destroy Elwin. I'm going to set him on fire because that's what Kate told me to do. So the sheriff shows up then to tell Lloyd that, Hey, villagers heard what David said and they're pissed. (laughs) <laughs> and so they're yeah they're they're not happy they're yeah, they know that there's strange things going on, you know they're it's the Frankenstein mob that's growing,
0: yeah, I was looking for the pitchforks,
3: yeah, definitely, I'm surprised there wasn't any. He says, Lloyd, you need to get out of town. This is going to be bad. But Lloyd says, no, I have to see this all the way through. So Kate, trying to help out, goes into the graveyard, but she goes during the day, which is what Lloyd should have done from the beginning. But anyway, so Kate goes to the graveyard during the day, breaks into the crypt, and finds Elwyn laying in his casket. But Zolar comes back just in time to kill her. Then later that night, one of the townsfolk sees – it's Elwyn, but they think it's Lloyd standing over a dead body – I think next to the forest or whatever that leads into the graveyard.
0: And I'm glad they did this. I'm yeah, glad it was they, cool. they acknowledged that they do look incredibly alike. I don't think they ever say they're twins. Well, do they say they're twins? I don't I don't think they do. I really so don't. I'm glad they acknowledged that they do pass for one another, and it is yeah. a plot point. It's not something that we're supposed to believe. Well, clearly, one's wearing glasses. So, you know, I'm glad they acknowledged that there's yeah, a and it potential works really, mis- mistaken identity thing. So.
3: It works really well, and it also... Whether you realize it or not, you know, maybe on first time viewing, you don't realize it, but it definitely has that little extra added flavor to this film that kind of makes it rise above the normal Poverty Row film. I don't believe that that idea would have popped into every Poverty Row director's head or writer's head, you know, oh, well, um let's have the townsfolk seeing. The evil George Zuko standing over this body and think oh my god it's it's uh, the good George Zuko and that moves the plot along even more so that was a clever way to do that I like that scene a lot definitely yeah and so the angry mob begins to form and the Kate's body is found and there everyone's getting angry and so Zolar moves the coffin to uh, Elwin's old house where Lloyd was burning all the books uh, Elwin comes back to what uh, arises from the grave and says why am I in my house and uh, Zolar says, well, you know, the town folk are getting mad. They think that Lloyd's committing all these murders. And so they're going to search the graveyard. They're going to search the crypt. So I, I brought you here. I thought this was an interesting scene too, because Elwin actually congratulates Zolar for thinking well. And I, that's not something you see a lot with whether it's a vampire master or whether it's a mad scientist and their, and their, uh, underling, you know, that usually it's, Oh, you fool, you know, and then bring out the whip. But here it was like, Oh, you did a really good job. <laughs> I wasn't really expecting that.
0: Yeah, exactly.
3: Uh, yeah, it was kind of cool. It was it's a different
0: refreshing. relationship. I liked it a yeah, lot. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It was, it was refreshing, honestly. You know, there's this other thing that happens where the mob the mob of people invade Lloyd's house with David. Uh, yeah, and then they sit around and wait for Lloyd to come back. Uh, yeah, that's cool. but the good scene at the end of this film is Lloyd comes to the house of Elwin. he see Zolar first and Zolar and Elwin start uh, fighting with each other zolar and lloyd sorry it's hard to it gets a little mixed up with the yeah. names zolar, <laughs> zolar and lloyd start fighting with each other and it's a good scene and i'm not really sure what it is that i was i was going to ask you about this that thing that they knock over and falls on zolar what is that
0: i don't know it was yeah. awfully convenient it's, it's like a pedestal of some sort yeah but it, it
3: was it looked like some kind of like really heavy kind of pedestal thing or something yeah it's it was kind of strange but it worked it looked good yeah i just wasn't sure what it was i'm you know,
0: i'm a little fuzzy on that myself
3: yeah i mean but it was really effective so whatever this thing is lloyd knocks zolar into this thing and it falls on zolar and the way that it's that it's situated is that it's laying on top of him and there's this edge at the top and it's almost like it's choking zolar
0: that was pretty creepy, actually. Yeah. It
3: was cool. Yeah, it was it was really cool. Like I said, I don't I'm not sure what it is, but it looks like it's really heavy. And so
0: he can't get it off of him. And the sound's coming out of Frey's throat when Suko yeah. is pressing it down on him. I mean yeah. it's just like Oh, this is uncomfortable. You're the good guy. Stop <laughs> Yeah, and <laughs> you know
3: Oh, and we we missed it. When they're when they're fighting in their in their little uh, brawl or whatever before he knocks him into that thing, we see that scene that we talked about earlier, the close-up of Fry. And it's yeah. it's so effective and he you just see all those years of him giving his all in his acting roles and you know reviving kind of that renfield slash fritz in this role and you see it in his face and you see the power in his face and he just it's it's a split second but it stays with you it's and it's
0: there man it is yeah, so there
3: and that that to me is the biggest evidence that he was a great actor until the very end and it wasn't just a fluke, you know, he really deserved more. One of the most memorable parts of this movie, but anyway, so he gets knocked into that thing and it's fallen on top of him. Well, at this point, Elwin comes back and him and Lloyd begin this strange kind of a uh, strangling match in the midst of this. They knock over some candles, of course, and the house catches on fire. This scene is really effective.
0: It's really good. This is my favorite split screen of the two. This is my favorite interaction of the two Zukos together. I don't know who played the double for Zuko, but they did a pretty good good job picking somebody who looked like him from behind.
3: Yeah, I never once thought that doesn't look like Zuko, which unfortunately can't be said in a lot of these other films. But yeah, it it looked really good. It, it It was a great scene.
0: And this is also where one of my favorite lines of dialogue happens. Okay. When... Elwynn says to his brother, you don't wait for death. You come to meet him.
3: (laughs) Yes, that is a great line.
0: Brilliant.
3: (laughs) That is a wonderful line. I love that line. Yeah, this whole scene is really, really well done. Yeah. So the house starts burning down. We get this cool look of they did it really well. It didn't look fake at all. You know, the house burning down, Zolar's on the ground choking to death, going, you know, screaming, Master, help me, help me, help me. Of course, Master's getting killed himself. Right. And uh so they're choking each other. Well, a hole has burned into the wall. The angry mob shows up with David and they they look through the hole and they, they instantly solve the whole problem and say, Hey, there's two of them. So then the townspeople know, okay, this wasn't Lloyd. This was Elwyn. Lloyd kind of looks up, and he's kind of got this little sad look in his eyes like he knows, oh, I'm not going to get out of this one. Yeah, And, you know, that could have been a way to... Maybe vindicate w- or what happened earlier in the film, you know, saying that Lloyd may have killed his brother, and you know he kind of got his come up it's too maybe right because the the roof caved in and killed all of them
0: and that scene was really good. I mean, the yeah, shot oh, no. from outside the burning building and you Very see well the done. the burning i guess bit of wood or the roof collapsing or whatever, yeah, it looks really good, and I was actually surprised to see somebody like Zuko apparently that close to real fire on set make
3: no mistake it does never it never looks like oh you know he's not really on fire you know it never it looks like hey this place is burning down
0: he's in trouble Get yeah. him out of there.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, that at that point, the room before it started catching fire wasn't really impressive looking. But at that point, it almost takes on the form of, like, maybe a universal. Yes. So it has that look of the end of a mummy film. So it, it really takes that on for me, at least. I thought, man, this looks really good. It really does. Uh, the roof caves in on them. They die. And then we cut to the funeral of Lloyd. Now, there's something here that... I shouldn't laugh in this scene, but I can't help it because, you know, I'm a big Ed Wood fan, and the little speech that the preacher gives is the exact same speech that they give at toward Johnson's funeral in Plan 9 from Outer Space. Is and it so- really? Yeah, they, they even use, like, to say Bible verse and everything. And oh, wow. So when I was listening to it, I thought, man, I have heard this before. And I realized, hey, that is what they say in, at Tor Johnson's uh, funeral scene in Plan 9 from Outer Space. And so I, I thought, that's kind of strange. <laughs> but um, anyway, so – and then the, <laughs> the the film ends there. Sorry about spoilers if anybody was worried about spoilers. But like uh, Derek yeah. said, this has yeah. been out for a while. So Yeah,
0: I think – even we even though we've done a pretty good job spoiling the movie if you haven't seen the film there is see it. a yep. wonderful i mean many wonderful reasons to see it and it's easy to get your hands on i mean it's a public yeah. domain film so for better or worse it means it's out there all over the place
3: well i will say i watched it twice i watched it on my roku player on uh, one of the roku channels on there the version i watched on there wasn't very good but surprisingly the 50 movie box set that i have the horror one with the Phantom of the Opera on the cover. I uh-huh. watched for the second time. I watched it on that. the The print of the film on that one is actually surprisingly okay. So okay. if you if you have your hands on that one, definitely give it a watch. And if you're listening to Monster Kid Radio, you probably love these kind of films anyway. So sure. you need to see this movie simply because of Zuko and Fry.
0: Mm -hmm, Definitely. Now, Alpha Video put it out. Mill Creek's put it out. It's on Amazon Prime right now for streaming, so you can watch it that way. I watched it off YouTube because that's what I had available to me at the time, even though I've got pretty much every Mill Creek set out there. Um, (laughs) So do I.
3: (laughs) I probably own this movie three or four times. Yeah, I'm sure I do, too. Uh, I didn't realize
0: it was on Amazon Prime until uh, just a few minutes ago when I was looking to see if people can see it pretty easily. So it's out there people can watch it and I would recommend it. I think it needs to be watched.
3: You know, I, I enjoy these kind of movies. Like I said before, I, I don't have that curse of watching a movie and thinking, Oh, well this is, unless something really sticks out to me, I can't, I can sit down and watch a movie for what it is and enjoy it. This is one of those films that I just, I really love to sit down and watch every once in a while. It definitely, in my opinion, rises up a lot above a lot of the public domain stuff. Now, you know, it doesn't quite get to, like, Carnival of Souls and Night of the Living Dead level, but, you know, oh, it, it definitely yeah. is up there. You know, I, I enjoy this movie, so,
0: yeah. I think if you're going to maybe do a study of George Zuko or Dwight Fry. this yes. movie needs to be on your list because yes. they both do so well.
3: Yeah. Uh, and you know, it'd be fun to talk about more of those George Zuko films because most of them are worth checking out, I think. And, you know, mm-hmm. especially, you know, I know we talk a lot about the mummy films, but you know, he did movies like the flying serpent and uh, I think he was in the mad monster. And he, uh, you know, he, he was in a lot of these films. he, mm-hmm.
0: Well, we of, mentioned Scared to Death. I mean, I, yeah, that yeah, means, I voodoo, think that one needs to be watched more. Or so. Voodoo Man. You know, Voodoo Man is oh, a great Oh, yeah. Movie. Voodoo Man with him and Lugosi together are great. Yeah, that's an awesome movie. John yes, Carradine's in that, too. And mm-hmm. I, I
3: love that movie. So, you know, he, he definitely deserves a little more recognition.
0: I agree. Definitely agree. This was a great movie to watch. I really enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed having you on the show to talk about it. I'm sure I mentioned it in the intro of the show, and I'm going to mention it again. And it's available on our website with the link to your podcast.
3: Uh There you're going to find the links to where you can download the show. We are on iTunes now, which is great. We are also now on Stitcher, and uh, I'm going to be looking into other sort of podcast services because I really want to be available to anybody who listens to podcasts. And so... Uh, You know, it's a fun journey. I'm just starting out on it. So, uh, you know, we're going to see where it goes, but I'm having a great time so far. You know, sometimes the technology can be a little much, but we have to appreciate it. And we have to realize that this is really what's keeping us all together and, and Mm -hmm. getting the word out about these great, great films that some people have forgotten about. So
0: it's unfortunate because these movies are so good and they're part of. I mean, even modern horror fans, this is part of their legacy, whether they acknowledge it or not.
3: Absolutely. These movies
0: yeah. laid the groundwork. I remember an article in a Horror Hound magazine a few years ago that compared the eighties monster icons to the classic icons of the Universal era and the analogs between something like Jason Voorhees and Frankenstein's Monster. And while it yes. was a little bit of a stretch, it's there.
3: There's a place for those monsters too. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I, I enjoy some of those movies as well. Like I said, I, I have a fondness for all types of these genre films. But I, I mentioned it on my podcast, I always come back to these universal horror films, mm-hmm. always. For me, that's where it all started. Those are the most effective films, in my opinion. There's nowhere else you're going to find Lugosi and Karloff and Cheney and Cheney Jr. And, you know, just everybody involved in these films are just the, you know, the patron saints it's just, we, whether we're talking about the early thirties or we're talking about, you know, the fifties and them and creature from the black lagoon. And oh, yeah. Even on into the, you know, outside of your realm, seventies and eighties, you know, I, I just love monster movies and I, I just, I'm going to try to always support them and get more people to watch these films that I love so much.
0: So, well, you're doing a good job with your podcast. Hey,
3: I appreciate that. Thank you for, uh, you've been a champion of the show since before you even heard the first episode. So I, I've really, I really appreciate that. You know, I love Monster Kid Radio and everything that you do and it means a lot that you support me with that. So thank you. I, I appreciate it.
0: Happy to do it, man. Happy to do it. And we gotta have you back on to talk about some more George Zuko films. Man, I'll come back on and talk about whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> listeners, I'm gonna peel back the curtain here. He sent me a message on Facebook. I'll come on and talk about cheese whiz. I love your show. Like, oh well. <laughs> Yeah.
3: <laughs> man, I like I said, I, I love all these movies, so I'm in for anything.
0: Right on. Well, I've been looking for somebody to talk about mummy movies with. So Hey,
3: I'm there, man. Every single right on. one.
0: All right. <laughs> right on. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Lugosi podcast.blogspot.com is where you're going to be able to hear The Vampire Over Hollywood, the Bela Lugosi Podcast. And, you know, I'm willing to bet that we're going to have Nicholas on the show again in the future. So you'll hear him here as well. Nicholas. Thank you for taking the time to make this happen. As I said in the last episode, this was kind of thrown together at the last minute. We talked about it and then said, hey, you're free in a few days, and it all worked out. We got Nicholas on the show, and we produced a couple of, well, I think, kick-ass episodes. So, Nicholas, thank you for being part of Monster Kid Radio. Open invitation to have you back on the show at any point if you ever want to talk about, well, Bela Lugosi or anything else, or non-Bela. Although, as a Monster Kid, how many times have you had a conversation that Bela Lugosi has not come up in? I mean, really... <laughs> I received an email earlier this week regarding an upcoming DVD release, the DVD collector set of the TV series One Step Beyond. I love this anthology spooky series. This was actually something that hit TV a year before the Twilight Zone, and it was hosted by John newland this was a really cool series i've not seen every episode but i've seen quite a few through roku on youtube even dr gang green's hosted a few episodes of this show it is in the public domain at least a lot of it is well now film chest media group is putting out the most complete set up to date of this series now there was a total of 96 episodes this collection will have 70 of those episodes season one of one Step beyond had been released on dvd before this is the most complete collection you're going to get of the TV series, and honestly, I don't know if we're going to see anything more complete than this for a while. I don't know what happened to the prints or the tapes. All I know is that I'm excited about having this set, which is going for a suggested retail price of $19.98. I can't wait to add it to my collection. It's going to be a six DVD set. And just to kind of give you an idea in terms of the caliber of people that are involved in this series. Like I said, John Newland is the host, but they got so many actors of the day involved in this show. Charles Bronson's in it, Robert Loggia, Robert Blake, Joan Fontaine, Warren Beatty, and Julie Adams appeared in an episode as well. This is something that I'm really looking forward to. And talking about when it comes out on disc, it's hitting in April. April 7th is the street date. So, you know, we'll be talking about it. Come April. Frequent Monster Kid radio guest Paul McComas called in his thoughts about the passing of Leonard Nimoy, Moy, and I wanted to share that now.
2: This is Paul McComas, author of Unforgettable, Harrowing Futures, Horrors, and Dark Humor, and co author of Fit for a Frankenstein with Greg Starrett. Greg and I made a short film called In Search of. Worm Man. In that film, I was honored to portray Leonard Nimoy. And we do fondly remember the In Search of series, but of course, our first association and our greatest is Spock. Spock, you'll be missed. Your outsider status and how bravely you faced it was helpful to us misfits. You weren't accepted by humans. You weren't accepted by many Vulcans. And uh, through no fault of your own, you found yourself occupying uh, both worlds and not quite fitting into either, but you made it work, and you grew and became not just one of the best Vulcans, but one of the best humans, too. We miss you, Spock. We miss you, Mr. Nimoy. Your acting, your directing, your photography, your personality. You're all around excellence. You'll live forever in our hearts.
0: The tributes to Leonard Nimoy have continued online. It's died down a little bit, I suppose, but it's still out there, and people are still putting up their thoughts, their memories of Leonard Nimoy and what he, either as a performer or his characters, meant to them. I didn't talk about all of my Leonard Nimoy memories when we did the Leonard Nimoy special, one that I do remember specifically that I'd like to share now has to do with Star Trek. I remember getting my hands on a Star Trek activity book in grade school. I don't remember much about it. Although I do remember specifically, there was a scenario kind of like a problem solving type question, logical thinking, that sort of thing. And since it was a logical thinking type question, of course, Spock was at the center of it and it had to do with Spock leading a team to a planet transporting off the ship and then contacting the ship and in a panic, demanding that they be beamed back up. And if I remember correctly, the the question was something along the lines of, how do you know it's really the away team, which they weren't calling them away team, back then, but how do you know it was that group versus, you know, maybe an alien intelligence or something like that? And the answer was that Spock wouldn't scream and be all panicky because that's not logical. And that really stood out to me. That really... Stuck with a little Derek for years. Spock really became one of my favorite characters, and that is mostly due to Leonard Nimoy's performance. And it colored my experience of Star Trek from that point on. I mean, even the Star Trek animated series, which a lot of people don't really say is canon, I loved. Anytime I had a chance to watch that, rarely when it would turn up on, like, Nickelodeon or something. And now that I've got it on a DVD, I've gone back and watched it again. I focus on the Spock-centric episodes. Leonard Nimoy provided the voice for the character, so it was like having Spock on another adventure that, again, young Derek just absorbed and loved and reveled in. And I know Spock is just a character. I know that Spock will truly never die I know that there have been other actors who have performed Spock on film. The J.J. Abrams films, there was a young Spock. And then, of course, Zachary Quinto's characterization. There's Brandon Stacey doing the Spock character in the Star Trek Phase Two and Star Trek New Voyages fan films. And he's great. But you wouldn't have any of that if you didn't have Nimoy. And you wouldn't have had as much, I'm going to say it, art in this world if it wasn't for Nimoy. So I know that I've thought a lot about his passing and what his influence on me has been ever since we heard the news, and I think we'll be thinking about him for quite a long time. Thank you for calling in, Paul. I appreciate it. (laughs) All right, so that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for listening. I know it was a little bit longer than I normally like to go, but we had so much to talk about when it came to Dead Men Walk and then the upcoming One Step Beyond release. and then We just had a lot to get through, so thank you for making it to the end of the show where I'm going to tell you about our website, monsterkidradio.net, where you can find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio now that the show's over. Head over there and follow all the links in the show notes to everything that we've talked about, like... Nicholas's podcast, Vampire Hover Hollywood, over at com. You can also follow the links across the top of our website to get to our Facebook group, our Live 365 internet radio station, where you're going to hear music and trailers from classic monster movies 24-7 for free. It is ad-driven by Live 365, but it's still cool. You're also going to find a link to every song that's appeared On the podcast in the past, we have links to our Patreon page, our Amazon store, where you can pick up a few things through Amazon. And in doing so, you're not spending any extra money, but Amazon's giving us a little extra money. Not much, like a nickel or two, but, you know, it helps support the show. Also, you're going to find our contact information. If you want to call in about anything you've heard on this episode of Monster Kid Radio or any previous episode, do so by calling us at 503-479-5657. That's 503 479 5 m K. R. We also have an email address of monsterkidradio at gmail.com where you can email us a sound file of your own or just a written email. You can do that too. That's how you can get a hold of us. Of course, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and any other podcast directory that happens to pick up our feet. Want to thank everybody for listening next week on Monster Kid Radio. Another person who's never been on the show before, a guy by the name of Keith J. Rainville. I don't know if that name means anything to you right now, but what it means to me is Mexican monster movies and luchadors. So come back next week to Monster Kid Radio for that. In the meantime, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC, is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Hunchback. That belongs to the band Burt Rocket. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. You can find them on Facebook, follow the link in the show notes, and buy their album, Savage Iceland, on Amazon. Talk to everybody next week.